Hello, welcome back to the horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And here we are with another 2022 favorite. Bodies, bodies, bodies. Say it thrice or not at all. <laughs> <laughs> and this is like an improv game, right? You would know all about this. I have never heard of this game until I saw this movie. Oh my gosh. <laughs> at least I think. It seems like a fun game though. Well, we're going to learn all about it. So Bodies, Bodies, Bodies came out in 2022, and I would say it's pretty divisive in terms of how people enjoyed it, but it's very lady heavy and Mm -hmm. very funny. Yes. It is so funny to me. I had so much fun watching this. (laughs) So diving right into our ladies, we got a bunch. So we have Sophie, who is played by Amandla Stenberg. She's known for The Hate You Give, the Sleepy Hollow TV series, and she was Rue in The Hunger Games. Oh my gosh! She's also an activist and musician and appeared in Beyonce's Lemonade music video. Wow, so cool. Yes, I like her career so far. She's been doing some really cool stuff. We have B, who is played by Maria Bakalova. She's in lots of Bulgarian works. She's a Bulgarian actress. She's best known for one of the Borat movies where she won a Critics' Choice Movie Award for Best Supporting Actress. That's awesome. Yeah. That's like a legit award. We have Jordan, who is played by Myhala Harold. She is known primarily for theater works and best known for a British TV drama called Industry. I gotta watch it. A British TV drama called Industry? That is like your cup of tea. Everything about it sounds amazing. We have Emma, who is played by Chase Sweet Wonders. She's known for Daniel Isn't Real, which I did watch. It was very disturbing. It's another horror movie. The Generation TV series. And she's also a screenwriter and director herself. Ooh. And then we have our favorite character (laughs) of this movie, Alice, who is played by Rachel Sennett, who carried this movie on her fucking back. And we enjoyed so, so, so much. I can't believe that she was objectively so unlikable, but in this movie was so fucking likable. She has some of the best one-liners. She, she really does. And I think exhibits her generation in such a accurate light. Not in a negative way. I just think the comedy of the generation, the Gen Zers we're trying to portray here, all with good fun and with a surprising amount of humanity. So not for Gen Zers, but just (laughs) for like the kind of movie this is. You know, I think a lot of times with horror, you get a lot of truth from exaggeration and she does it so well. She's best known for the comedy Shiva Baby. And she's also a comedian, which is very fucking obvious just based (laughs) on some of the way that she played this character. Which leads us into a little bit of pre-plot trivia. So this was directed by Helena Rain, and the screenplay was by Sarah DeLapp with the story by Kristen Rupinian. Wait, I know who she is. I am 99% sure she wrote the short story Cat Lady. Cat Person. Cat Person. Yeah, yeah, she did. She did the story? Yeah. (gasps) That's what she's known for is Cat Person, but I didn't put that in there because I didn't recognize it. Wait, that is so cool. I wrote a paper about that one time for grad school. Oh, yeah? Yeah. (laughs) What is it about? Like, what is it? It's like the short story about this college-age girl who meets a guy on a dating website and goes on a couple of dates with him, but she just gets weird feelings and breaks it off, and then he says all these awful things to her. But it's so nuanced. I wrote about like the emotions in the story. It's a really good short story. I remember when it came out, it was published in The New Yorker, uh, I want to say maybe 2018. And I remember like it just completely went viral because it has so many nuances. I think a lot of people found a lot of truths in it, especially people who have to date men. Like it's just... Have to date men. <laughs> it's, it's so relatable. So I, I highly recommend it. But that is so cool that she contributed to this movie. I haven't seen her name since that story. So it's awesome that she's doing a bunch of things. So the name of the movie and the game played in the movie are based on a commonly played improv game called Body Body or Murder in the Dark, where players run around a dark room while the murderer kills players by tapping them, hoping they get away with killing the entire group, which I know it goes by so many names. I've played this and called it Vampire. Yeah, I've heard it (laughs) called so many other things that is not this. I believe even one of the other characters in the movie called Werewolf. I think it just goes by a lot of different kinds of It's a classic. Yeah. Who wouldn't want to run around in the dark and tap their friends as a way to metaphorically kill them? Yeah. I would be the worst. You wouldn't be good at I this I would one. be screaming, crying. Ugh, it would be too hard for me. I'd be, get way too into the story. In the darkness, way too... No. It has to be played in the light for me, I think. 
So a little bit of more trivia, being that the director, Helena Rain, was older than the main cast, who all were ages 23 to 26, so well within the ages of the characters they were actually playing. How old is Pete Davidson? I guess they were talking about the main lady cast. Oh, okay, good. I don't know exactly okay. how old Pete Davidson is. Okay. <laughs> Obviously, Lee Pace is not 23 to 26. He's older. <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> But... She gave them a lot of freedom to improv their dialogue during pivotal scenes to be more realistic to how their age group would actually react. And I won't say what parts were improv yet. I'll bring them up as they come along. I'm so excited. In that sense, like, that's where I think Rachel Sennett shines because some of the (laughs) shit that comes out of her mouth, you're just like, oh my fucking God, like, this is golden. But something I think is important to talk about before even starting this movie is you have to know what it is going into it. In the sense that it is a horror comedy, bold face comedy with some horror elements to it. I've heard it compared to Scream a lot in the sense that this movie is kind of meant to be Gen Z Scream in the sense that there's a lot of tropes and there's a lot of self-awareness among a lot of the characters on how they're acting, but they're acting that way anyway. So I could see if you were to go into this movie expecting something a little bit more of a straightforward slasher, you'd be disappointed, especially by the ending. But I feel like if you go into this just kind of expecting to see this group of people just fucking implode on themselves and fall apart and just giggle along the way, I think you're going to have a really good time. So let's get into it. Yeah. How do we open? We open with a very intense makeout scene. Yes, we do. (laughs) Between B and Sophie, who are girlfriends, and they are making out. It's very romantic. We have close-up shots. The lighting is very soft. And as they finish kissing, Sophie tells B that she loves her. So feeling like we're starting out very much in a romantic drama of sorts, as opposed to a horror movie. But after that scene concludes, next thing we know, they're on their way to a hurricane party (laughs) in Sophie's friend's mansion. David's family owns it, who Sophie never misses an opportunity to say that he is her best friend. Yes. And of course, she is bringing B along to introduce to her friends. And so they're driving in this car to a very secluded mountainous area. And I mean, this is a big, big, big mansion. B, we can tell, seems a little bit nervous. She is an immigrant, right? Yeah, I mean, she has a heavy accent and there's even some dialogue later on. It's like, oh, are you Russian or are you this? Or are you mm-hmm. that? And she's just kind of like, no, but you <laughs> could tell that English is in her first language. She's mm-hmm. really trying to connect with the people around her. And important note, she does not say that she loves Sophie back. She doesn't. So <laughs> it's very interesting just to kind of see their relationship dynamic. And then once you hear how long they've been together, I'm like, bitch. What was it? Six weeks. Six weeks. Uh, I'm going to save that for later, but (laughs) that's like one of my like main critiques of this movie. I was like, first of all, it's offensive on the stereotypes you're putting on queer people. (laughs) And second of all, I'm mad that you're right. (laughs) Like, come the fuck on. (laughs) Well, B doesn't match her energy. You're right. B does not match her energy. Well, because they have this exchange where B's like, I really need you. And Sophie like starts to try to fuck her. Mm. And then that's where Sophie's like, I love you. You don't have to say it back. And then she doesn't. So it's like, oh, okay. Like you guys are on completely different pages. Which when you hear how long they've been together makes all the fucking sense in the world. It does. But it is interesting when you learn more about Sophie's character and maybe how impulsive she is, that it matches that tone a little bit more. But I was both offended, but also like, oh, bitch, you've <laughs> talked to queer people writing this. I get it. I get it. <laughs> they make it to the mansion. It seems like they're the last people there. But before they get inside, B realizes she forgot something in the car, goes back to grab it. It looks like she brought maybe like a loaf of banana bread or something tied up in string. Zucchini bread. Zucchini bread. That's right. She does say zucchini bread, which oh, zucchini bread is so good. But she goes back to grab her loaf and quickly pulls down the car mirror to make sure she looks okay before going inside. And as she leaves the vehicle, shuts the door, locks it up, and moves towards the house, we see that she left the mirror down, which immediately I was like, this is going to be a problem later because the light on the mirror stays on. Yes. And I wrote that this reminds me of the house from Bridesmaids. <laughs> Where the bachelorette party is, where she's like just driving through with a lemonade and it's just like, fuck, that's good. (laughs) It takes so long to get from the gate to this like weird roundabout driveway. And they are the only car in the driveway, which is confusing because everybody else is there. And that will also become important later. 
So as Sophie approaches the pool, everybody is underwater, and as they see her approach, they come up to say hi to her, but not everybody is happy to see her. Alice is super happy to see her, you know, hugs her, makes sure she's okay. She kind of asks, you know, like, how have you been doing? Like, very intentionally. So we understand that there might be something that Sophie has gone through recently, and Alice is genuinely happy to see her. But then we have Emma and David, who are together. David is the owner of this house, or his parents are the owners of this house. And then we have Jordan, who are all in the pool and kind of just like, hey, like, you could tell that they're not as happy to see her. But... (laughs) This is where we get Sophie saying to Alice, who I guess has a podcast, love the podcast, (laughs) which felt very much too real for me in terms of that you feel the need to say this thing that maybe don't actually mean. And (laughs) this hurts a little too real. (laughs) But just then, Greg, did we introduce Greg? No. So Greg is there. He's Alice's boyfriend. He pops up out of the water and is like, I guess I won the breath holding contest. (laughs) (laughs) So that explains why everyone was underwater. But also I think it shows Greg's age. Like when we were growing up, we were playing games like how long can you hold your breath? Because we didn't have cell phones to (laughs) entertain us every step of the way. And Greg, he must be maybe in his 30s, maybe even early 40s. Early Um, 40s, I think. Yeah, with his young 20s girlfriend. And Greg's doing party tricks with swords, and this is pissing David off. You can tell that there's some, like, masculinity shit brewing here, where Greg seems very, like, comfortable with the group and comfortable with himself, where David seems a little bit more, I'm mad that you're showing off right now and that you're getting all of this positive attention and I'm not. And granted, I think a lot of that is that Greg is Lee Pace and David is Pete Davidson, like, both very different. They offer different flavors of masculinity of what people are into, Mm -hmm. but But they go to do a toast to the hurricane where we find out that Sophie is actually sober, so she's not partaking in anything, and B joins her in being sober. This is also where we learn that there is another character, Max, who is not present but should be there, and it is revealed through some conversation that Max and David got into some sort of disagreement, and Max left that night, but he had driven everybody else, so the only car that is on site is the car that B and Sophie came in. So we don't know who Max is. It's teased throughout the movie that we might learn who he is, but that's just something to keep in mind. So just then the rain starts, the storm is rolling in, and everybody heads inside. The next scene, we have B and Sophie making out yet again in the room that they're sharing, and David just walks in, and he asks to talk to Sophie in private. So that leaves B kind of alone, which, again, everybody knows that feeling, like the person you come with leaves and you have to navigate the social waters by yourself. Meanwhile, Jordan talks to B and tells her to be careful with Sophie. Not in like a, you be careful with my friend Sophie way, but like, be careful with Sophie. Like, warning her, maybe she's not all you think she is at this time. David and Sophie have this real but not real conversation where Sophie calls David out for being upset with her for bringing B along to the hurricane party without telling him when Alice did the same thing with Greg. And she's like, well, why is it a problem when I do it? Where David suggests it's because you've fucked off on drugs and disappeared for a bunch of months and now you come back with this girlfriend and we don't even know that you're okay. And now you come back and you're involved in this thing and you expect us all to be happy for you. We also get some more background that Max had given David a black eye the previous night because Max had drunkenly confessed his feelings for Emma, who is his girlfriend, and they got into a fight and Max left. And then we just also have some context given that there is some tension between Greg and David. David says, I just look like I fuck. That's like the vibe I like to put out there. (laughs) where, Where Greg is just this army guy who's just totally handsome. So it's, again, it's like distinguishing that there's two different modes or breeds of masculinity. And again, instead of like working together or bonding over their differences, David is very much like making them go into different camps. Sophie then asks David if he's heard from her parents. And he's like, is that why you're really here in a lighthearted way? So we're getting the sense that, yes, these two are childhood friends, but maybe Sophie has really been fucking up in the past and she has to answer for all of these relationships not being on the page that she'd like them to be. And she's trying to use this hurricane party as her way to get back into everybody's good graces after perhaps going through some very challenging things within her friendships and herself. Meanwhile, downstairs, B calls her mom and leaves a message, a very sweet message on the phone. And the others around her are filming TikToks. 
B is eating a bunch of chocolate cake where Alice warns her a little bit late, I might add, that the chocolate cake she's eating has weed in it. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, it's not a lot. It's not a big deal. I just, you know, wanted to let you know. These are also like bad friends to <laughs> Sophie because they're saying, oh, how long have you been together? And this is where we find out they've only been together six weeks. Yeah. <laughs> And somebody says, six weeks with Sophie? Wow, that's an accomplishment or something like that. Girl, like, that's your yeah. friend. Rude. You're really making it seem like this person is the absolute worst. Again, we get this culturally insensitive dialogue where it's like, are you from Moscow? Because Dr. Zhivago is my favorite film. <laughs> like, like, trying to be inclusive, but being very offensive at the same time. Right. So pretty shortly after this is when we cue our dance montage. Even though it seems like B was originally going to stay sober, she's accidentally consumed a bunch of weed cake. So that's pretty much out the window. And so we cue our dance montage. There's a lot of drinking, using drugs, dancing. It's a pretty wild time. There's a great song playing in the background, some slow motion dancing. We love that. We love that. But then... Sophie observes Jordan seemingly getting a little bit too close with B. There's some flirtation going on. She doesn't like it. So she cuts the music and suggests that they all play Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Yes. And this is where we get the There Are Rules segment <laughs> of the evening. So everybody draws a piece of paper out of the hat. And if you draw an X, you're the murderer. What happens is they turn the lights out, the murderer kills people by touching them on the back, and if you are killed, you play dead. If you come across a body, you yell, bodies, 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 and then all the lights go on, they all congregate, and then try to figure out who the killer is. Each round, they vote somebody out who they think is the killer, and then the game is over if you actually vote the killer out. And if not, the game continues. So it's kind of like Among Us, these different versions of these party games that we talked about earlier. They start the game by David doing a lot of coke, which seems to <laughs> very much concern Sophie, and they all slap each other and take a shot before starting each round. Is this like a real thing? I don't know. Maybe? <laughs> I can't imagine like <laughs> full hand slapping one of my friends across the face. I can't imagine letting somebody slap me across the face. I would get way too upset. I know. This seems like a little bit much, and it does seem a little <laughs> bit much- <laughs> Because Jordan seems to hit B a lot harder than she needs to, like mm. very mean-spirited like. And then B, in turn, doesn't want to hit David, who she's sitting next to. But the way that David tries to play it off is like, look, it's not a big deal. And then punches fucking Greg in the face. <laughs> that is a funny moment. It is very funny. Oh, man, poor Greg. We commence the game. All the lights go out and people are still using their like cell phone flashlights to see and get around. But we're really focusing on B in this moment, kind of following her, her perspective, what she's seeing, where she's going. And shortly after the round begins, we hear bodies, bodies, bodies. The lights go on and everybody congregates to maybe the living room, one of the living rooms. <laughs> it's a big it, house. It's a big house where we see a dead, quote unquote, Greg on the floor. <laughs> They have a debate over who killed Greg. People think it's David. People think it's Emma. She's an actress. People think it's There's Jordan. Another- like everyone's oh, yeah, name yeah. kind of gets thrown around. But then the round becomes less fun because David, feeling the heat of suspicion, really blames Emma and focuses on that whole idea that she's an actress. And then he gets on her case about having none of her own original thoughts he is a big dick. She starts crying, but he insists that she's just acting. It's also intensified by the fact that Alice jokes, oh, is this why you two never have sex or something like that, which is <laughs> proving that Emma has been talking to her friends about David's relationship problems. And David's like, well, are you talking to people about us? She's like, no. And then there's this whole conversation about how she says that David is gaslighting her. David's like, that's not even a real word. He is saying that she does not have an original thought that has not been preordained by somebody else, which is a very mean thing to say. Yeah, it's a very fancy way of saying essentially that she's stupid. Yeah. And because of this, David gets voted out of the round because everyone's just kind of tired of his attitude. So he skulks off. And then Greg's like, you know what? I got killed. I'm going to bed. And I'm like, this is me at the party. I'm like, get me out first so I can go have my like quiet time in bed with my phone. And I don't have to play this stupid party game and get slapped in the face anymore. So there's more slaps and shots, just the girls this time. 
And then the lights actually do go out because of this storm. Also, like, pointing out the fact that these people are having a hurricane party so that this is a natural disaster and they are using it as a chance to party. We are going to come back to this later. The Wi-Fi is now out and they all think that David is pranking them because he's pissed at everybody for voting him out of the game. So they all separate to go off on different missions. Like somebody's going to go to the basement to try to get the breaker. Somebody else is going to try to look for David. B's going to try to find the bathroom. So while B is downstairs trying to find the bathroom, David slams up against a glass door from the outside with his throat slit. Oof. And he is bleeding. Sophie then comes down and discovers this. They all reconvene and surround David, but no one has service to call for help. So they all then try to get to Sophie's car. And when they get in the car, they discover the battery's dead because B left the mirror light down. But they don't have another car because, again, this Max character had picked them all up and he is no longer there. So they get back inside. David is dead. David's gone. Yeah, he's gone. He's beyond help. So the emergentness of the situation has gone down. I wrote that Sophie and Emma are kind of taking turns over who should be the most upset because Sophie's like, this is my best friend. And Emma's like, that's my boyfriend. She's like, you didn't even want to be his boyfriend like an hour ago. Like you wanted a boyfriend more than you wanted to be with him, like all that kind of stuff. And they just start getting into these fights. And I'm like, it really is so interesting to see the kind of shit that comes out within a friend group, like the amount of shit that there actually is present there. And then all it takes is one little bit of heat and everybody's going to start freaking the fuck out and blaming each other. And that just continues throughout the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. And the first person to really fall under suspicion for David's murder is Greg. You know, part of the reason for that is the conflict that Greg and David have had since they've arrived. But also because Greg is really unknown. So this suspicion surrounding Greg leads to some questioning of Alice. We got to get to know who this man is, how she met him. And Jordan leads the questioning mostly. She asks Alice how long she's known Greg, how much she's gotten to know him. And Alice responds, he's fundamentally a good person. He wouldn't do this. Like, no. So Jordan, picking up on the fact that Alice really hasn't given any concrete details, is like, do you know his middle name? Do you know where he lives? Do you know how much fucking money he makes? And Alice just responds, I know a lot. (laughs) And Jordan says, what's his middle name? And Alice goes, he's a Libra moon. (laughs) So basically, Alice doesn't know anything about Greg. And then it comes out that they met on Tinder two weeks ago. We thought six weeks was a short period of time. These people have known each other for two weeks. Yeah. He's like, you don't ask for male names for like a really long time. (laughs) Nobody asks that anymore. What did she say? But I love how she knows that he's a Libra moon. And honestly, I see a lot of myself in Alice for this reason. I've definitely known somebody's birth chart before I've known their middle name. Hell yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think, again, I think that's normal. So now Jordan is armed with a meat cleaver and they all go looking for Greg. And I think Emma has now disappeared at this point. So they go looking. Greg is not in his room, but there is a lot of coke on the table. And then they go through Greg's bag. (laughs) And it's a full on killer bag. it, (laughs) It has a map with the house circled in a location. There's knives, there's rope, there's gloves, like it looks like a full-on murder bag. And this is not looking good for our guy, Greg. Alice insists it's a go bag because of the hurricane, which if you think about it is so valid. Yes. I don't know. Maybe he didn't realize they'd be in a literal mansion or maybe he thought, fuck it. You never know what you're going to need when you're going to need it. And he's also been established as an army guy. So the fact that he would have all of this tactical gear on him seems pretty par for the course. Yes. But suspicions are still there because, you know, where is he? He's not in bed. Where could he be? So they go look for him, which is where they find Emma. She was hiding under the covers, which I also really identify with. And then they all eventually find Greg in the gymnasium. (laughs) They find him laying out starfish style on his back in the middle of the gym floor with a light up mask on. They rush in to get him. He's confused. He had been listening to headphones, which he says is, you know, why he wouldn't have heard anybody calling his name or any kind of commotion. Alice is the one who says that's his light mask for his seasonal depression, (laughs) (laughs) which I respect. This is one of my favorite scenes in the movie where he's like, oh, are you guys still playing werewolf? And they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? 
And then he gets really big and intimidating and starts chasing everybody <laughs> around the gymnasium, which like to any small femme person to have somebody of his size and stature like running at you, you can tell from his mannerisms that he's kidding, but all of them are genuinely terrified. Oh, like yeah. they're all running away from him like, ah, and he's like, oh, I'm just chasing you around on the werewolf. I get it. We're playing this game. And it's so funny because he does not see that they are actually terrified and that there has been some actual things that have gone on this evening you know they start interrogating him being like why do you have a go bag and he's like for the hurricane of course (laughs) he's like are you guys like fucking with me and sophie's like holding a knife to him he's like yo listen like disarms her gets the knife like everyone put down your weapons and he tries to get everybody to calm down once he's realizing that he's dealing with a lot of people who are very upset but instead turns into an attack where Emma attacks him, Jordan attacks him, he knocks them both off of him while also being like, oh my God, are you okay? Like you could tell he doesn't want to be fighting these people. (laughs) And also if you think about it with the logic we've been thinking of him, he doesn't know any of these people. He's only known Alice for two weeks. Who is she? He's probably putting together those pieces on his end too. Right. But as the struggle begins to ensue, B stabs Greg and kills him. No, she bludgeons him with the kettlebell. Alice is inconsolable. Of course. But, you know, we've never got the sense, even in the interrogation scene, that Greg was our real killer. I did appreciate that they took the two masculine people out first. And Jordan kind of follows up with this logic. Like, in any situation, they would be the first people that you would think about as being a threat when you have five women and two men. Like, it's probably going to be one of the men. And Jordan calls up on this logic. Okay, listen, like, on paper, he was the most likely to commit an act of violence. I mean, he's the only one who served in the military, right? And Alice is like, what are you talking about? And you're like, you said he was a vet. (laughs) And she's like, he was a veterinarian's assistant. Are you kidding me? Which also makes me so sad because I loved Greg. And then, but then she's like, why the fuck did you call him G.I. Joe? And she's like, have you looked at it? <laughs> it's so funny. It oh is really funny. God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This was so fucking funny. But again, I did appreciate that immediately they're debriefing what is happening. Like, I feel like if you look at any other horror movie, they're just kind of like, oh, my God, this guy's down. We got to move on. Oh, my God. Like, we're not going to sit here and process. But they're immediately processing. They're immediately trying to justify what they did. They're immediately trying to find reasons in what they did. Like, Jordan being like, well, statistically, on paper, he was the he had to be the one, right? <laughs> like, the fact that they're, like, using logic and they're using all of these, like, different modes to try to justify, like, oh, my God, we just killed a man. And this is what we're going to have to explain ourselves for. So, like what's the story mm-hmm. is something very Gen Z to me. Yes, I agree that rehashing. But, you know, Alice is doubting that it was Greg. Now that we learn that Greg was a veterinarian, maybe statistically he wasn't the most likely to commit these crimes. So Emma then starts to theorize that maybe Max is the one that did it. And we get a little bit more information about why Max left the night before, which is because he had confessed to being in love with Emma, who we knew was dating David. And so he got angry and ended up leaving. So they're starting to wonder, is he back for revenge? We don't know. Meanwhile, there's also a lot of tension between Sophie and Emma again, because this is where this argument of who loved David more happens. Emma calls Sophie toxic and says that David was relieved when Sophie disappeared. And Sophie says that she wished it was Emma who died and not David. But we know that at that point, Sophie had already relapsed. She had partaken in some of the coke that I think was on the table in Greg's room. And she was also drinking a little bit. Yeah. So maybe maybe she was taking note of these things. And in the rising heat of the moment, it was really easy for her to relapse, especially with no witnesses, because everyone was scattered, the power's out. And then, yes, she says all of those awful mean things to Emma. But then later, she runs into Emma again and immediately apologizes. She says, I am so sorry. I said those awful things to you, etc. And then Emma kisses her. And Sophie's like, what are you doing? Why would you do that? And she was like, isn't that what you wanted? And she's like, not everybody is in love with you, Emma. <laughs> but it is showing that that's Emma's character, whereas like anyone shows her any ounce of like humility or intimacy, like she wants to like jump on that. Right. Well, also think about her relationship with David. Like he was such a dick to her. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it wasn't the first time and they were still together. Like it's funny, but it's also 
I think maybe some more sad commentary about like the kind of relationships that sometimes people get used to being in and like what they register as romantic love and affection when really it could just be common courtesy or friendship or maybe the idea that sometimes people apologize when they're mean to you. And it's also (laughs) the idea that Sophie had been rummaging through all of these like game boards to find hidden drugs and offered her drugs Mm. as like a way to placate the situation. And that's probably something that David did a lot was just like, oh my God, have this Coke or oh my God, like stay in my fancy house. And she's used to having to pay back these favors with sexual advances, maybe. So that's a good point. It might be something having to do with that where it's like David has given Emma all of these material things and she's used to having to return it in physical ways so when sophie is like why did you kiss me she's like well i thought that's what i had to do Mm. well she accepts the drugs and then later we focus on alice who is looking through the house i don't know if she's looking for anything specific just trying to maybe survey the situation and she happens upon emma's dead body She's at the foot of one of the staircases with a serious head wound. And we can see that clearly she has hit her head on the way down the steps based on the blood on the walls. She screams and everyone convenes around her. They talk more about they believe that somebody in the group has been killing everybody one by one. And of course, that would mean it has to be one of them. Right. Alice is convinced that she was pushed. And then she's like, well, who was the killer in the game? Because the deaths are following the same pattern of who died in the game. So Greg, David, and then Emma was, I think, next. Like, she says that, but I'm like, was Emma ever dead in the game? And then that's when things got, like, fucked up. Well, somebody brings up immediately that David did not die first in the game. Greg died first. Yeah. But then David was voted off. So immediately that logic is flawed, but they all still go with it. Right. (laughs) They all start turning on B for wearing makeup and wearing somebody else's sweater because after she had killed Greg, she changed her shirt. I mean, it is weird that she's wearing makeup. Yeah. But it's also calling back to she still feels the need to be putting on even though they're in like this very like tense and high <laughs> stress situation. She's like, I just killed a guy, so I might as well put on some lip gloss. You know I what I mean? I make a good impression on I my girl's friend. make a good impression. You know what I mean? <laughs> But this is where the tide starts turning on B because B had shared with Jordan earlier in the night that she had gone to Utah State and Jordan big brain pulls out, there's no record of you at Utah State and then starts putting the pieces together and starts blaming her like, hey, the car was your fault. You're the one who found David. You're the one who killed Greg. And this leads a charge to force B out of the house with all the other girls and Sophie does not stop them. No, she stands silent, completely useless. So now B is outside in the middle of a raging hurricane. She tries to get to some other doors, but we see that Alice has gotten to each one of them first and locked her out. So she runs down to where Sophie's car is parked. She figures out a way to push down the car window and get inside. On the inside, she immediately starts eating a bag of Cheetos. Me. This is me in this situation. She needs some assistance. And she starts rifling through Sophie's things to try to find something dry to put on because she is soaking wet. And as she is in the back seat trying to find something dry, she finds a pair of panties that are remarkably similar to the little bralette that she had found earlier in Jordan's room. And these are very unique. They're like a really cool yellow, lacy situation, like very clearly a set. And so she has a moment where we can see she's wondering, why would these panties be in my girlfriend Sophie's car? Hmm. We don't, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) So B finds a doggy door that lets her back into the house. This is a massive doggy door. This is like a doggy corridor. I mean, you got a big dog. I could fit through a doggy door that your dog (laughs) had, probably. Probably, probably. While she was finding her way back in the doggy door, she had seen Jordan loading a gun through Mm. the window. Mm -hmm. So she tells the group about this and makes Jordan empty her pockets, only to discover that Jordan was the killer in the game. Uh Uh-huh. So B then accuses Jordan of killing David because apparently she was the last one to the scene after David had died. Accuses her of killing Emma and you're hiding a gun. So like, what the fuck is going on? But Jordan calls B a liar and they begin fighting. Like this begins a fucking clusterfuck of a scene where everyone starts blaming each other and everybody's shit starts <laughs> coming to the surface. So she calls B out for not going to Utah State. B says that she did go to Utah State for a semester, but didn't graduate because she had to take care of her mom who has borderline personality disorder, you know, comes clean to Sophie and the entire group about that. And this is, 
<laughs> this is where fucking Alice is coming in with these one-liners where she was like, oh my God, like mental health is a really serious issue. <laughs> I've never said this to anybody, but I have body dysmorphia. <laughs> body dysmorphia isn't funny, but the context of her bringing up something like this in comparison to the situation that they're in was so fucking jarring and so funny. And again, with that actress's timing... My favorite kind of comedy is just the contrasting reality of so many of these one-liners. Like, we're really talking about this right now? This line, I think, also triggers Jordan to really clap back against Alice. She expresses resentment for Sophie because, and this gives us more context about Sophie's drug addiction for using for all of those years and Jordan and David having to, quote, rat her out to her parents and take on that responsibility and make sure that she got help. But then Jordan accuses Sophie of only wanting to be back in their friend group's good graces to see if David could talk to her parents about her trust fund being reinstated again. And then she claims that Sophie cheated on B with her. She was like, you called me on my way up here to stop over and we had sex, basically. Which we know B has already found that pair of underwear. So that story checks out. All of the suspicion and strangeness that I think this evening had already been sowing between that couple, I think is like at its ultimate climax right now. Yeah, there's also some commentary Sophie throws the fact that all of them have been doing lines all night in all of their faces saying that, you know, you have this addict friend that you're supposedly so worried about. But when a black girl has a coke habit, but her best friend who's a white guy has a coke habit, all of a sudden it's not a problem. This is one of the improv lines that Rachel Sennett provided for the movie. Really? Yes. A lot of this whole scene of them (laughs) calling each other out is improvised. But Rachel Sennett, I watched an interview with her and she said how putting this line in here, like she wasn't even supposed to speak. It was supposed to go right back to Jordan calling her out for being like an abusive girlfriend and making her sit in the back of an ambulance with her so many times. And the weight that Sophie's addiction has really had on all of the friend group. And Alice wasn't even supposed to say anything. But the way that Rachel Sennett thought about it is if somebody were to bring something like that out about like talking about race and addiction and something like that, somebody in Alice's position would want to defend herself right away. Like Mm. she would want to be able to jump in there. And she does. She jumps in there with, I totally understand. (laughs) And I'm an ally. (laughs) And I completely get how it looks that way. Like all she does, but she doesn't say anything. It's placating. It's just trying to smooth over that like, oh, wow, I fucked up. And I want you to hear me before I listen to you and I understand you. And it's so good. There's also just some funny shit in here where Jordan calls B a psychopath. <laughs> Sophie's like, don't call her psychopath, that's ableist. <laughs> yes. Now that her complicated familial psychology is out on the table. But Sophie, now that Jordan has aired a bunch of Sophie's dirty laundry, claps back and tells Alice how Jordan hate listens to Alice's podcast <laughs> because she actually hates it. And of course, Alice is very upset. Like a podcast is a lot of work, okay? <laughs> and I wrote, Yes, the fuck it is. Yes, the fuck it is, bitch. Yeah, Alice claps back at Jordan, and I really liked this line that she says. She says that Jordan sucks, and everyone only hangs out with her out of pity and the suffocating weight of our shared history. And I thought that was really interesting because it's really showing that this friend group isn't staying together out of genuine love or respect Mm. or anything for one another. It's really that we've been through this much so we can't stop being friends because the fact that we wouldn't have this group chat anymore or the fact that we wouldn't have this space to come and party and like to talk shit with each other on is more important than building more genuine connections with anybody else and that is hard like there are relationships i think as you grow that you feel very obligated to because of that weight of your shared history and i loved that that was something that they brought to the surface in a way that was both obviously very painful but realistic but this hurts jordan this hurts her and she proceeds to shoot alice in the leg (laughs) after saying like your parents teach at a university stop trying to pretend you're poor it's public (laughs) 
It is really interesting that of all the hurtful things Alice says to Jordan, the thing that seems to drive her to that very quick, aggressive action is this idea of class separation. It's that. And the last thing that she says is, no wonder why Sophie OD'd who could date a spreadsheet with a superiority complex. That's hard. (laughs) That's Um, rough. Jordan gives a lot of Joanna energy from Rent when she's like, I love, what does she say in Take Me or Leave Me? That song she sings with Maureen. She's like, I love something in discipline. Like, she's so put together. Yeah, she loves yeah. her spreadsheets and discipline things. Right. She's like a lawyer. She has her life together. Absolutely. But in Take Me or Leave Me, she, like, claps back at Maureen. And she's yeah. like, I love this part of who I am. Yeah. But here, maybe Jordan would be Joanna in a couple years. Yes. But right now, she's upset by this comment. She's feeling very, <laughs> very fragile, very vulnerable. Yeah. And yes, Alice gets shot in the leg. Yes. A whole struggle ensues because Jordan still has the gun, but she shot Alice in the leg. Alice is very upset. She goes at Jordan to try to get the gun. Then, of course, all the others are joining in trying to get the gun because these two characters are mad at each other. They're scared for what might happen if somebody gets a hold of the gun again. And then in the struggle, the gun goes off, the pile disperses, and we see that Alice has been fatally shot. Rip the the best character of this movie. I know, I know. So this leads to another fight. We're still trying to get the gun. (laughs) Sophie and Jordan are fighting. They make it all the way upstairs in this altercation. B is able to come around some alternate staircase. And as is always the case in a horror movie with a banister, Jordan is thrown over the banister by B. And with her dying breath is still referring back to that conversation about her having just been with Sophie before coming up here. She tells B to check Sophie's text messages, which I kind of love that in her dying words, that's what she said. Check her text. (laughs) Then B ends up hiding from Sophie. Well, they're hiding together. At first... They ask each other if they killed people. Neither of them admit to anything. And B asks, like, did you sleep with Jordan? And Sophie denies. And Sophie again says, I love you, okay? Do you love me? Manipulative shit. Mm -hmm. But this is what makes B run away from her after Sophie tries to embrace her. Sophie's running around for B saying they have to stick together. B kind of goes through like this little final girl circuit where she finds Emma's body and Alice's body and Jordan's body. It is now daylight and the hurricane has ended. She goes outside to the pool to find a mess everywhere from the storm where then I liked this tension where Sophie grabs B from behind and it looks both like a grapple and an embrace at the same time where yeah. she's like holding her still, but also like, I love you. <laughs> and Sophie then confesses that she gave Emma the pills. So it's her fault that Emma tripped and fell down the stairs. Mm-hmm. But we also never saw that scene, so we don't even know if that's being truthful. Well, no, because we did see Sophie give Emma the drugs, but we didn't see Emma take the drugs or Emma fall. What if she pushed her? Right. B creates distance with the gun, asks for Sophie's phone to see the text. Of course, there's a fight over the phone. They end up in the pool. They end up in the mud. There's a struggle. And B then finds David's phone instead when they emerge. And they unlock it to see a TikTok of him playing with the sword. (laughs) That Greg was playing with earlier and slitting his own throat by accident trying to open a champagne bottle the same way that Greg did earlier. (laughs) So again, this competitive masculinity made David kill himself. (laughs) And this has been the impetus for thinking that there has been a murderer this entire fucking time. Mm -hmm. Like, Emma could have really just fall down the stairs and then the paranoia made everybody else kill each other. You're right. I have the paranoia now. Well, that's part of the movie is thinking like there has to be somebody, there has to be somebody, there has to be somebody because the fact that David is dead means that everything else had to happen. But B killed Greg mm-hmm. and they could have just fallen down the stairs because she was coked out. And then everything else was everyone killing each other because they were too paranoid that somebody else was killing everybody else. Just then, after the TikTok is discovered, a confused Max returns to the mansion, also with some fight wounds we saw David sporting earlier, and asks, what's going on here? Just then, the power comes back on, the fountain starts working again in the pool, (laughs) B gets service again on her phone, and the movie is over. How did you feel about this ending? Like, were you, like, mad? Were you satisfied? Like, what were you feeling? I thought it made a lot of sense. I liked it. I thought it made sense because it felt like throughout the movie, there were so many parts the characters were missing. Like, it felt like they kept coming up with theories, but nothing ever felt like it was a fit. The thing for me was knowing that David died in the rain. 
like he was all wet, but none of the characters came back inside wet. Do you know what I mean? So I was like, how could he be killed outside in this mm-hmm. rainstorm? Mm-hmm. I mean, he came to the window, so he was still living. So it would have had to just happen, but everyone was inside. Everyone was dry. Like, I guess you're right. It could have been Max, but then you start seeing the friends kill each other and it's just becoming so strange. We don't see any evidence of another person, no car in the driveway when B is out in the driveway. So it just, it felt like nothing was making sense. And so this way I felt like it was a really neat commentary on paranoia, friendship. I don't know. I thought it was cool. Yeah, I liked it a lot. I thought it was a very satisfying conclusion just to kind of show the idea that Gen Z is often thinking about everybody else before they're thinking about themselves or (laughs) they're thinking about their perception or like what other people are thinking about them. And that's not in a hateful way. It's just in a way that I'll talk about a little bit in the post plot, just talking about how Gen Z is one of the first generations that have to be aware of how they come off on multiple different platforms and in multiple different arenas all at once where... You know, I would say millennials, and we're like baby millennials as it is, Mm -hmm. are kind of versed in that and knowing of how to appear online versus how to appear in person and knowing that you code switch or that you have to ride those lines in a different way where our parents don't, they'll post embarrassing shit or, you know, like all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's literally a language that they speak. That's a really good point. And a lot of that is them trying to exemplify these relationships and these bonds that they have with each other that they probably built primarily through a screen, through a group chat, through these IMs, like whatever it is, right? That's such a good point about the digital connection because they mentioned that group chat several times. Yeah. And I guess, I don't know, sometimes it might feel like the worst thing in the world you can do to leave a group chat. That's something I literally read with the screenwriter is talking about how that group chat is never seen, but always brought up. Like the idea that the day you are removed from a group chat, like it's an event, or if you don't reply in the group chat, it's kind of seen as like an affront. And Mm -hmm. that's why I hate them. Why I hate being in them. The fact that there is like a social contract of a group chat that you have to either like a message or you heart react to a message or you have to verbally partake. Otherwise, like you seem like you're a bitch or you're this or you're that. You know what I mean? And especially in a group chat when you have a virtual room of people in it that all have different communication styles and it's all going to translate despite the unwritten or written rules of text rhetoric. Like it's, everything's going to come across differently to different people in a group chat. Even in a text message, like I can't have a serious conversation with a friend in a text because I will catastrophize. I need to like hear the voice on at least the other end of the phone or like sit in front of somebody and understand what's going on because there's just so much gray area in a text message. Punctuation. If you use a period at the end of a sentence, like Mm -hmm. somebody might be like, this is it. Like our friendship is over. Or like emoji usage and then not using emojis. Like it's really is just a different language. It's so stressful. In a group chat, it's like you have to navigate that with seven people instead of just one other person at least. I was saying this to a friend of mine about how we've really gone backwards in communication in the sense that like you started language with like cave drawings and hieroglyphics to like tell story and to tell history. And then we got to spoken language and then we got to books and then we got to all of these types of things. And then we've somehow landed in a universe of memes and emojis. And you're supposed to derive meaning from meme usage and emoji usage. And that is kind of meant to be storytelling again. And we've just gone in a fucking circle. That's such a good point. Like the idea of images being so much a part of communication now when for so long written word really ruled that arena. Like where there is communication, there are always going to be people trying to find ways to use that language and alter it for their use. And I think that's something that Gen Z is very good at calling out, especially in older generations. And it's not what you're saying, it's how you're saying it, where they'll call out the whole, there's no hate, like Christian love shit, or, or like, <laughs> or like even the fact that Alice in this movie is like, I'm an ally. Like she's just trying to say the right thing, but what she's actually saying is you just called me out on something and I don't want to seem racist. You know what I mean? Right. So it's all about the how and not the what. It's just so interesting. And the fact, and this leads actually perfectly into the post-plot trivia, that they're all in the dark the entire time. They don't have access to their phones except their lights. They're all in the dark about how they can communicate. And that's something that the director had even said about why she chose a scenario or a setting where they aren't able to just Google something or Google Maps something. Like they have to just rely on those personal bonds and watch everything implode. That is a really good point. And especially if they're so well-versed on a group chat seeing how they fare when they're talking with each other in person, it's no wonder it totally fails. (laughs) They're really not used to doing that these days. So going into the post plot, 
In an interview with the director, the source of light each character uses is symbolism for their personality and the role that they play. What? So B has her phone strapped to her hip, showing her selflessness for helping her mother and others. So not even using the light, just kind of having it on her. Jordan uses a headlamp showing her spotlight for no-nonsense confrontation, (gasps) which is very direct. Just like the no-nonsense utilitarian, like, I need to see. (laughs) I also think, too, like, coming from her literal brain, Mm -hmm. like, leading with her head, showing her focus on intellect problem solving. Alice covers herself in glow sticks, showing her desire to be liked and to be the center of attention. Mm -hmm. And then Emma, David, and Greg never use any form of light, which is kind of showing their ability to fall into the background when it comes to their dynamics or to really only be there to operate off of other people which I thought was interesting. Except, I guess, if you look at Greg's face mask. But, I mean, it's not really like a source of light. It's just a seasonal depression mask. Yeah. And then I had mentioned this earlier, the improv scene. So I had mentioned that, like, confrontation scene at the end, the party scene, and then also the gym scene with Greg was very much improvised. Really? Other parts of the movie were improvised, but those were the ones that she gave them complete freedom on, like, how to get to where they were going. <laughs> that is so cool. The veterinarian thing. And that, that was all improvised? She oh, improvised that? From what I could gather from the interviews, they said the gym scene was a lot of improvisation, and then that last confrontation scene was a lot of improvisation. But what was written versus what actually came out, <laughs> I don't know the specifics. I love the idea that it's possible that Greg being a veterinarian was completely improvised. Like, for all we know, he could have been an army guy the whole time until she was like, he was the veterinarian assistant. (laughs) The power of improv, baby, I'm telling you. So talking a little bit more about the themes, this comes from the Bodies, Bodies, Bodies wiki. Bodies, Bodies, Bodies has been described as a satire on class and privilege, all mediated by new technology, the language of progressive politics and youth culture, and Gen Z identity itself. In a piece for the New York Times, Kalia Richardson writes that the film satirizes Gen Z's symbiotic relationship with their cell phones and the internet, using dark humor to illustrate what happens when those two things become inaccessible. When the Wi-Fi goes out, it's like they lose oxygen, <laughs> remarks director Helena Rain. Richardson notes that despite the physical danger each character faces, their virtual realities remain central to the plot, recalling the character's inability to relate to each other in person without the use of trauma-centered jargon of social media such as gaslight, trigger, and toxic. So going a little bit off of that New York Times article by Clea Richardson, she continues on to say, Gen Zers rely heavily on digital spaces for self-expression, community building, and news gathering. And that is a quote from Amanda Steinberg, who plays Sophie. But also, they face a sense of cognitive dissonance as they try to stay present in virtual life and reality. Indeed, said Sarah Bishop, a professor of communication studies at Baruch College, for them to be able to defamiliarize or step back from this massive presence in their life is asking them to do something impossible, right? It'd be like asking them to imagine a life without solid food. (laughs) Still, Rain wanted the film to be real and honest, but also funny, as each character shared a primal urge to belong when online usage swallows self-awareness. I think we live in a time where we're all very narcissistic because we're constantly on camera, she said. Right now, we're constantly aware of how we look, and that is, of course, unprecedented, right? Normally, it was just actors or musicians, and now it is all of us. That is so interesting. I think this game is something that's a perfect situation for something like that, where it's all about, do people think I am the killer? Or do people think that I am XYZ? And then you take away this virtual or digital persona that they've been able to create with one another. Because again, presumably, these are like post-college graduate friends. Like you're not seeing these people day in and day out like you used to. Your entire ability to connect with them relies on your ability to communicate effectively. And the fact that they're all now together and they might be different people and they have all of these grudges or this history with one another, they are hyper aware of how they're coming off to one another. And in a game that's sewed in paranoia, I just think it's so interesting that they were able to continue this type of self-awareness in how they are being perceived. That is so interesting. And I'm also thinking now too, with this idea of this game relying on being able to manipulate how others perceive you in order to win or continue. Yeah, I guess to win, like continue being the murderer or get the right person. It also makes me think about the ratio of guys to girls in this movie. Like we only have two guys and then we have what, five women? Mm -hmm. 
that's different from a lot of horror movies. And I'm even thinking about Scream, too. Like, there are a lot more guys in Scream. Like, we ha- very much have Sydney, the final girl, and then her best friend who gets killed off. And it's kind of like, what is it about Gen Z or this movie that makes it make sense to have this overwhelming majority of women? And I'm, I kind of think, too, like, social media has created a space for a lot of women and feminine energy to come to the surface and really take control of those platforms. And I feel like especially for women where looks and appearance have always been very important to gaining control and moving through power channels, whether it's to land the marriage you need to advance socially or be perceived a certain way to get the job you want. Like, I think it's interesting that we are seeing the women in this movie last the longest and navigate this situation the longest based on appearances very preliminary thoughts. I'm just kind of speaking as I'm thinking, but I don't know. What do you think? I mean, not to point out the obvious, but just the fact that one of the central relationships is a queer relationship Mm -hmm. too. And I also think about the character of Jordan a lot, because if you look at everybody, they're coupled up. You have Allison, you have Greg, and then you have Emma, and you have David, and then you have Sophie, and you have B. And then you have Jordan, who's off to the side. And I always think of that person who's off to the side as being almost like a Marty character in Cabin in the Woods. Oh, yeah. Like your stoner dude who's just going to like be there. But instead, you find like the most final girl material being alone and being by herself. And she's not coupled up. And she's doing all this type of aggressive investigation on like how to actually solve this issue where everyone else is just kind of cowering to the wayside. And you would expect somebody in Sophie or B's position, because we've been following them the most closely, to kind of sit in that seat. But, you know, when I'm looking at this movie and I'm looking at, like, who I want on my side, I want Jordan on my side. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, objectively. I, w- I want to be objectively, I want to be by Jordan. And the fact that Sophie and B's relationship doesn't necessarily have a clear masculine to feminine role, even. Mm-hmm. Like, the fact that they both lied to each other to show how, like, imperfect it is. B lied about her mom and her educational background and Sophie lied about, you know, cheating on her and her problems and all of this kind of stuff. So I did appreciate that the relationship was taken seriously for what it was, but it was also the main relationship that we were concerned with throughout, like kind of knew that we would end up with the two of them at the end, you know? Yeah, they were the last ones, I think, to really see the imperfections with. Until we found out about the possibility, Sophie called up Jordan to have a quick rendezvous before she made it to the mansion. Like that was the first sign that maybe the love Sophie had to give to B wasn't what we thought it was. I feel like even when B came out with what was going on with her mom, that still felt very genuine. I don't know. Her lie didn't seem as severe, but maybe that's because of the way B's been characterized and what cheating usually means in a romantic relationship. Even Jordan, like, yeah, you'd probably want her on your side, but she, like, did not hesitate when it came to stirring the pot. No. She was a pot stirrer. She was messy. Very messy. And even though maybe we didn't technically see her lie that we know of, she was not afraid to throw other people under the bus and watch what happened when she did that. So that's a little bit terrifying. (laughs) But that's what I appreciated so much about her. And maybe it's because I saw like a little bit of younger me in her (laughs) in the sense where it's like, I don't care if I'm being a good friend to you right now. I'm going to tell the fucking truth and you're not being truthful to anybody else. So am I not going to like point out that, yeah, like this is a red flag. Like what the fuck? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like that's what I think that's why I appreciated her so severely. But she also did let her emotions get the best of her. Like if she didn't shoot Alice, like how would the movie have ended? You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that decision really kind of solidified where the movie was going. Mm-hmm. Had she not done that, I mean, they all what they if all just waited lived. out the night, and Max would have come back, and then what? Not to victim blame, but if Greg didn't pretend to be a werewolf, <laughs> <laughs> where would the movie have gone? I don't know. Overall, I like the movie a lot. I didn't feel like I connected with it as much as I thought I would, but I did recognize some pieces of the movie that I had seen, like. You know, as a teacher, the students I teach, also things I see on social media. So I did appreciate some of these things being taken and put on the mainstream as a very intentional critique that I thought was needed. I think that there's a lot of things about social media use that a lot of the population just accepts. And I thought that seeing some critiques of that communication style or that lifestyle was valid because I think for anything we do, for any lifestyle we choose, I think, you know, it's good to see some counter arguments for maybe the benefits we perceive coming with it, like instant fame 
or admiration, right? There has to be a flip side to that. And I did appreciate that this movie came out and wasn't like social media is amazing and it connects us to everyone we want. It said instead, hey, this isn't the only way to communicate with people. And it's important to remember to talk to people face to face sometime. That's something that we had said prior to this is I think the idea that neither of us connected to it so viscerally is the point because we're not Gen Z. Mm-hmm. Like this isn't going to feel as real as something like Scream did for us because we grew up in that era and we didn't grow up in this era. So the fact that we know how to speak this language because we're like baby millennials or whatever doesn't mean that it feels as visceral as it might feel for somebody who actually is navigating those types of waters in that kind of communication style when it's all they've ever known. So I liked it. I thought it was funny. I do think it's going to be a really cool time capsule movie just to kind of see like, oh my God, this is how people act and this is how people (laughs) communicate. But I thought it was a fun ride as long as you know what you're getting into. Right. I agree. Mindset is everything for this one. So if you would like to get in touch with us or just follow along with what we're doing these days, feel free to email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com to get in touch, give us recommendations, or follow us on Instagram at thehorrorspodcast. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.